Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. In our last episode, we discussed the first year of the Asian Campaign, covering the year 334 to the summer of 333 BC. Alexander had won his victory at the Granicus River and marched from city to city along the southwestern shores of Asia Minor, before stopping at the Cilician Gates, which guarded the pass into Syria and Egypt via the Taurus Mountains. He had also suffered several near-death experiences, both by the weapons of Persian ability and the ravages of disease. Fortune seemed to be on the Kyung King's side, though, but it would take more than luck for Alexander to break into the south, since he was finally ready to face off against Darius III in battle. Since the word of Alexander's victory at the Granicus, Darius had been marshalling a massive force to Babylon in order to challenge the invader. News of the death of the commander Memnon reached the great king's ear, and though it may have discouraged him, he remained resolutely confident in the enormous quantity of men he can acquire. Quintus Curtius has a passage delightfully describing the volume and diversity of the troops, arranged in circles of that it could fit 10,000 men in order to make counting easier. The style is clearly an attempt to emulate Herodotus's description of the troops in Xerxes' invasion some 150 years prior, and the sheer quantity of men, the sources claiming between 300 to 600,000 men, is clearly inaccurate. But it does show that Persian military logistic ability had not faltered since the Greco-Persian Wars of old. An anecdote of Diodorus and Curtius, while probably untrue but certainly enjoyable, has Darius boasting to one Charidemus, an Athenian in exile at the great king's court, about the size and resplendence of his soldiers. Asked of his opinion on Darius's chances, Charidemus, the noble and wise Greek that he is, commented that while the glitz and glamour of the gold and purple the men were wearing was certainly a sight to behold, Alexander's troops were men of iron and bronze. Instead of wasting his fun on acquiring such finery, the great king should have spent his silver on acquiring soldiers. And for that barb, Darius ordered for him to be executed. And as his throat was being slit, Charidemus cried out, I have the avenger of my death ready at hand. Darius's army, followed by an enormous baggage train which included much of the great king's family, marched towards the Taurus Mountains. Initially, Darius wanted to wait and meet Alexander in the flat and open plains of Assyria in order to take full advantage of his numerical superiority. After a number of days had passed, largely because of Alexander's serious bout of illness keeping him stationary, Darius had begun to feel anxious and felt pressured to push into the neighboring Amanus Mountains, despite the protestations of the Macedonian exile Amintas, who begged the king to stay where he was, and that Alexander would pursue and fight Darius on whatever terrain he was presented. In the autumn of 333, Alexander, now healthy and having passed through the Taurus Mountains, had sent Parmenion along with a force further south to secure the position of the Syrian gates, the exit that would lead to, well, Syria. While near the city of Issus, Alexander received word from his scouts that the forces of Darius were actually right behind him and had cut him off. The height of the mountains and the darkness of a nightmare masked both armies from one another when they passed each other. But Darius got wind of Alexander's location and pushed to meet him at Issus. 
There he caught a group of wounded and sick Macedonians who were unable to keep up with the rest of their column, and he had them executed. Issus seemed like unfavorable terrain to Darius, not allowing him to use his numerical superiority, and with Darius ordering his treasure and family to be sent by, to nearby Damascus, it seemed like an act of stupidity. Scholar C.L. Murison points out that Darius probably was looking to eliminate the separated army of Alexander, a sound strategy, but perhaps pure luck had prevented them from reaching Issus first. Alexander called a meeting of his officers, including a returned Parmenian, to assess the situation at hand. He addressed his men, commending them for their past bravery and their devotion to duty thus far. Alex reminded them that though they faced the cream of Persian troops, these were people succumbed to leisure and not hardened by the fires of war and toil. Calling out individual soldiers by name and their great deeds in the campaign, he reassured his men that victory would be at hand by their strength of arms. The troops cheered, and many clasped the king's shoulders out of a brotherly love before settling their camp at night. Dawn broke, and the Macedonians prepared for battle after resting in a morning meal. The battlefield was to be at the shores of the Gulf of Issus. Bisecting both armies from one another was the Panaras River, and along the right wing of Alexander's army were raised slopes. On the far right wing nearest to the slopes were the light infantry Agema and the shield-bearer Hypasipists, followed by the battalions of Perdiccas and other officers. Holding the center phalanx and left infantry was Crateros, yet another name you should keep track of, and followed by Permenian on the left. Darius's forces numbered some 80,000 men. Screened by a line of cavalry, Darius attempted to lay his battle line without Alexander's knowledge. The center was lined with Greek hoplites to counteract the Macedonians, flanked on both sides by a sizable number of native Persian Kardakis. Light infantry had been sent along the slope to Darius's left, and the great king himself would take his traditional place behind this line upon his golden chariot for all to see. A sizable mass of troops was reportedly stationed behind Darius, unable to be used for the moment due to the way the terrain is leveled. At a signal, Darius lifted the screen and ordered his cavalry to be set opposite of Parmenian in order to trick him. Alexander, having caught the attempted deception on the great king's part and the fact that his left flank was rather understaffed, ordered Thessalian cavalry to be sent behind the phalanx to reinforce the left wing without Darius knowing, and repositioned many of his light infantry, archers, and scouts to face the Persian troops along the ridges, while he himself remained at his usual spot in the right wing. In theory, his army would be divided into two wings, one facing Darius and the troops across the river, and the other wing facing the forces along the slopes. Then the battle began. Alexander led his troops forward at a leisurely pace, while Darius remained on the opposite riverbank and relied on an erected palisade, cementing in the Macedonian minds that Darius had little confidence in his own troops. The Basileus then rode up and down the line, calling out troops of all ranks and origins for their bravery. Then, a great war cry arose, and the Macedonians moved faster and faster. When in range of missiles, Alexander spurred his cavalry forward, charging across the river and smashing the left flank of the Persian forces. The men were horrified at the speed of the thundering hooves of the Macedonian horses, and most of the left wing just crumbled before the spears of the Hittiroi. Darius, suddenly aware of what great peril he just landed in, 
spun around and fled for his life, with Alexander following in pursuit. Despite the great success, Alexander's infantry at the center were not so lucky. The Greek mercenaries spotted an opening in the Macedonian Syntagma and tried to break through it, killing at least 120 of Alexander's troops in the process. The Macedonian infantry on the right wing spun around the collapsed Persian left flank to rescue their comrades and managed to drive the Greeks off in a furious combat. Alexander too, reportedly concerned with the state of his troops after seeing them struggle against the Greeks, turned from his pursuit of Darius to race back and save his men. While this was all going on, the Persian right had been leading a cavalry charge against Parmenian and the Macedonian left, engaging in battle with the Thessalian horsemen Alexander had previously moved. But upon seeing Darius flee the battle and the timely arrival of Alexander, they too broke and fled. What would be called the Battle of Issus was a smashing victory and a premier example of what makes Alexander such a brilliant commander. He nailed the psychology of his men, being able to pick out individual soldiers and praise them for their past deeds, a trait mimicked by later great commanders like Julius Caesar, and also reinforced by his ability to give up pursuit of Darius in order to save his men. His tactical genius can be seen in his ability to read the battlefield and make adjustments to his troops on the fly, despite being on unfamiliar territory and outnumbered. Above all else, his great daring and bravery in leading the decisive cavalry charge that broke the left Persian flank, an image that would be famous throughout all of antiquity, and particularly famous to us by way of the legendary Alexander Mosaic recovered from the House of the Fawn at Pompeii. The number of losses on the Macedonian side ranged from about 300 to 1,200 killed, but the Persian losses were astronomically higher, even considering the obvious exaggerations, with Arian claiming some 100,000 Persian dead. Part of the booty captured was the great king's tent and personal goods. Alexander noted Darius's gilded bath among the treasure, one of his officers astutely remarking that actually it was Alexander's bath now. While soaking among the perfumed oils and sparkle, Alexander commented, So, this, it seems, is what it is to be a king. It was reported to Alexander that among the prisoners captured, they included the family of Darius, Sisigambis, his mother, his primary wife Statira, and two unmarried daughters, one named Barsini. Alexander was told that the family was sobbing hysterically at the sight of the king's goods being passed around by the men, thus assuming that Darius himself was dead. In pity, Alexander ordered his officer Leonatus to inform them that Darius was still alive, and also told them that no one was to lay a hand upon them, not even Alexander himself, and that they shall be accorded the respect of someone of such a rank would deserve. Another instance reports that Alexander entered the tent with Hyphestion, and Sisigambus, taking the taller and more imposing Hyphestion to be the Basileos, incorrectly referred to him as Alexander. Mortified once she realized her faux pas, she pleaded for her family's lives, to which Alexander good-naturedly responded, Don't worry, mother, he too is Alexander. This scene, so popularly depicted in art and a favorite story in the medieval Alexander romance, was highly praised by the ancient authors. Indeed, some of these women were reportedly the most beautiful in the entire Persian Empire, and it was considered incredibly chivalrous on Alexander's part to treat them so well. 
and if it is true, I myself find it to be highly commendable. With Darius having fled west to the Euphrates River, Alexander pushed south into Phoenicia, receiving the surrender of all the nearby cities, including that of the neighboring island Cyprus. While in Phoenicia, Alexander had received a Persian envoy, who was carrying a letter written by Darius. The contents addressed Alexander as an upstart rebel who wrongly invaded Persia for no real reason, and requested the return of Darius's family in exchange for an alliance between both parties. Alexander shot back that the Persians were the ones who invaded Greek territory first, thus striking the initial blow of the conflict, and he would not return the family of Darius back unless Darius himself submits before him. If he will not submit, then he shall be crushed into dust. Oh, and he also added that Darius should address Alexander as King of Asia from now on too. Sending a squadron of troops to capture Damascus, Alexander managed to retrieve much Persian treasure, amounting to some 3,100 talents of silver and several thousand pack animals. Not a bad catch, all things considered. In the winter of 333-332, to he continued his journey south. Alexander headed towards the famed city of Tyre, an old Phoenician port, the Phoenicians themselves being considered the greatest sailors of the ancient world, and it was originally made rich with the exports like its famous Tyrian purple dye. In the ancient period, Tyre was originally an island a mile off the shore of Phoenicia, whereas today it is an isthmus connected to the mainland, largely for reasons I will get to shortly. Still, Messengers from the city came out and claimed that they were willing to do whatever the Basileos commanded. Alexander spoke about wanting to pay a visit to the famed shrine of the Tyrian Heracles, in actuality the Phoenician god Melkart, who was equated with the demigod of Greece. Consistently, we find Alexander attempting to pay homage to these foreign gods, which seems odd in our modern perspective. But the Greeks and Macedonians were perfectly content in accepting that different religions and regions worshipped the same gods in different forms, a form of proto-henotheism, but that is also the subject of a future episode. Unfortunately for Alexander, and unfortunate later for the civilians of Tyre too, the Tyrians had changed their mind. They were willing to do anything except for letting any Macedonian or Persian inside the city. In part, the Tyrians were not interested in letting either side into the citadel, given that the war's outcome was not yet easily discernible, but also because a great religious festival for Melkart required all foreigners to leave the city. In anger, Alexander dismissed the envoys, ordering his officers and commanders to meet, and left threatening the Tyrians that he would lay siege to the city in return. This didn't particularly bother the envoys, since their city was situated in such a strong defensive position and fortified to the umph degree that Alexander would be dreaming if he thought he could take it. Well, that's precisely what happened. A dream came to Alexander, the appearance of the god Heracles escorting him into the city, which was interpreted that although it would be quite difficult, Alexander would eventually take it, completing a task equivalent to one of the twelve labors of Heracles. Again, delighted at the prospect of being equal to a godly ancestor, Alexander was not being deterred. To start, Alexander ordered the construction of a huge mole, a bridge made out of sand, wood, and stone to connect the island to the mainland, 
On paper, it sounded challenging. But in practice, it was made even more difficult by the repeated destruction of siege engines and killing of the mole builders. Things were stalling for several months until Alexander deduced that, in fact, a navy was needed for a victory. So, ordering the construction of a small fleet, staffed by some defected Phoenician sailors, he engaged in combat with the Tyrian fleet, managing to drive much of them off and killed several Tyrian crews. Upon completion of the mole, Alexander managed to bring up his siege equipment to the walls of the city. He tested along the structure for any weak points, located the soft spot, and managed to make a small breach in the wall, but was beaten back from entering the city the first time. A few days later, Alexander prepared for the final assault. Ships carrying much of the siege artillery pounded the breach in order to open it up further. These ships were then sent to circle around the city and confuse the Tyrians inside, while ships carrying gangplanks made for the breach and landed. The first Macedonian to mount the wall was immediately speared, but that didn't stop the troops who poured into the city. The siege was long and brutal, lasting some seven months into the summer of 332, and some 400 Macedonians died under the blows of Tyrian defensive weapons. One simple yet horrifying weapon was sand, heated until it breached a bright red color, and then dumped upon the incoming poor Macedonians, melting and burrowing into their flesh, driving many to madness, and some even leapt to their death to escape the pain. But in any case, the sack was brutal. The angry Macedonians slaughtered some 8,000 men, women, and children, and sold 30,000 others into slavery. The only ones to escape death or bondage were those who sought refuge in the Temple of Melkart, given amnesty by Alexander in honor of the god. The once proud Phoenician city had now been laid waste for attracting the ire of Alexander. While cleaning up operations at Tyre, another letter was sent by Darius to Alexander. Addressing him as, Your Majesty, this time, Darius offered in exchange for his family, a payment of 10,000 talents, letting Alexander retain the lands he had conquered thus far, and offered an alliance by giving the hand of his daughter, Barsini, in marriage. Parmenian commented that if he were Alexander, he'd take the offer. Alexander responded, I would take it too, if I were Parmenian. Alexander then rejected the great king's offer, noting that the lands and treasure he had captured so far were his anyways, and he could take Barsini for his wife, even if Darius didn't offer her. He did tell Darius, though, that he was coming, and he'd best prepare himself for war. But in the autumn of 332, Alexander did not seek the decisive end with Darius. Instead, he turned his gaze south, to the ancient lands of Egypt, among the most prosperous of the Persian satrapies. There he would capture great wealth, the grain harvested from the fertile Nile River, and perhaps, most interestingly, the proof of his godly heritage. Thank you all for listening. I hope you guys are enjoying the campaigns as much as I am. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe to me on iTunes and leave a 5-star review. If you want to keep up with my show updates or you just want to chat, Follow me on Twitter at HellenisticPOD, that's all one word. Links and sources used will be provided in the description. 
But in any case, I look forward to seeing you all next time in the next episode of the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>